Welcome to episode 277 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest this week is Ben Nelson, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Minerva, and an editor of the book, Building the Intentional University. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dirk, why don't we dive right in with our questions for Ben today? Sure, John. So, Ben, what are the problems with higher education at most colleges and universities today? Uh, that's, that's a very broad question. Uh, <laughs> but, but I could categorize uh, the, the problems in one meta issue, and then there are various manifestations of it. So the mm. meta issue is that colleges and universities are trying to be everything to everybody. And when, you know, if, if you were to create any kind of enterprise uh, and say, oh, let's, you know, uh, serve the needs of uh, many different constituencies, oftentimes with conflicting wants, then you would create a lot of problems. And the thing that people don't understand about the college and university system when they look at it from the outside is that the currency of higher education isn't money. It's not a generally profit-driven set of organizations. Uh, it isn't outcomes, unfortunately. It really is all about prestige. Prestige drives the world of academia. It drives individual members within academia, right? Professors who are striving for the Nobel Prize or uh, for tenure or for publications in major magazines and everything that actually is related to the other. And the decisions that the institutions themselves make is a collection of other elements of prestige. And so mm. when you think about all of those forces that are pushing universities, the thing that unfortunately gets compromised the most is education. Because the educating of students doesn't generate prestige nearly as much as the selection process of the students, the careers and research careers of the professors, uh, the amenities that the university can boast about, the beautiful campus, the sports programs, etc. And so what happens is that education becomes forget a second-class citizen or even a third-class citizen, in many ways an afterthought. And because of that, the university system all over the world continue to provide a service that um, is suboptimal, to say the least. Uh, and that really is, I think, at the core of, of all of the problems of higher education. You're right. These these are big picture issues and, and real real meta threads. You, you the, the first thing that you mentioned before procedure was trying to be everything to everybody. Um, yeah. You know, at, at Minerva, are you taking a more focused approach? Is that one of you know one of the tacks you are you are taking for an improved uh, educational experience? Absolutely. So we are an educational institution first and foremost. Now there are things that you need to to do if you are providing an education in residence, as we do. Our students all live together and they're, they have a residential experience. And so obviously, you have to make sure that the students are safe, 
right? That they have some infrastructure to make sure that you guide them on how to navigate the world, especially in the Minerva instantiation, that you provide them some co-curricular opportunities, ways for them to uh, experience the world around them, etc. But at the same time, we do that with the view of educating and growing our students. And so rather than thinking about uh, uh, student safety as a silo, saying, oh, my God, let's, uh, let's just keep students safe. So the easiest way to do that is just put them in jail, right? So you can just build a castle, put them in, you know, generate moats and armed guards and make sure nobody gets in so the students are safe, at least from the outside world, you know, but who knows from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, we look at it as, well, these students are going to graduate, and forget graduating, during the summer, they're going to go out and do an internship, maybe halfway around the world. They actually need to know how to keep themselves safe. They need to learn how to have some street smarts. They have to learn how to navigate new environments. They have to learn uh, what smart behavior is versus what's pretty stupid behavior. And so everything we do is trying to provide that level of of focus for students. But what we don't do is we don't have a campus. Uh, We have residence halls where students live, but they're in the middle of the world's most vibrant cities. And so we don't need to build an an alternate reality that not only costs an enormous amount of money, but has all sorts of uh, other pulls and and pushes from society. We don't offer uh, cafeterias. Uh, We don't offer gyms. There are plenty of ways for you to eat and exercise in the real world. We don't have intercollegiate athletic programs. And so we are not beholden to NCAA rules and competitions and and defocusing our students from their primary goal, which is to study and and learn. Uh, We don't operate our own research labs. Uh, Many of our professors do decide to uh, pursue uh, very active and vibrant research uh, careers, but we treat our professors like professors are treated almost every other country in the world, including places like the UK and Germany, which is that professors need to write grants and those grants need to support their research as opposed to having the institution charge undergraduates and subsidize the research that way. And so we, we try to focus on the essence of what the educational mission of a university is and design the institution around it to optimize educational outcomes as opposed to worrying about other factors. And so how does that manifest for the student? I mean, the, the lack of infrastructure, more integration into the city and environment. Like, I understand that conceptually, but what does the experience look like for a Minerva student going through your program? So on the one hand, uh, Minerva students have a, a relatively similar experience to more of the large urban universities. So for example, if you think of a Columbia or an NYU, uh, and this is especially the case uh, for NYU, which is really integrated into the city, but even in Columbia, students that spend a lot of time on that campus are kind of missing the point. They're in Manhattan. They, they should probably take advantage of being in Manhattan, and most students do. The fact that Columbia offers the whatever infrastructure they offer on campus is in many ways a waste because students will spend the bulk of their time in the real world. And so mm-hmm. our students have the same type of day-to-day experience. The only difference is that they're learning to adult a little bit faster, 
right? So whereas in most universities, still the center of gravity is the frat party and, you know, I go to the cafeteria and everybody takes care of me uh, in, in the day-to-day. At Minerva, yes, you're living together you're in a residence hall like in other universities, you have residential life, uh, et cetera, but breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you have to cook. You're cooking for yourself. You have to actually manage a life, much like you would when you're an adult or when you're out working over a summer in a summer internship. And so the the day-to-day experience is very much a modern city living with the overhead of actually having a live-in uh, staff member that you can turn to, that you can get advice from, infrastructure around mental health and student support, and the kinds of uh, guardrails that allow you to learn to adult faster. And that's kind of on, on the day-to-day. It's all very interesting. And how does this translate to the formal educational experience? We've talked about sort of a lifestyle educational experience, but I, I think you know most of us listening to the show have been to college or university. We have a sense of what that educational experience looks like. How is it different at Minerva, the classroom? You know, is it, is, do you have classrooms? Yeah. What, what is that? Yeah. So if you think about a traditional education in, in a university, college or university, you think about it in a conglomeration of really independent units. You take 30 courses while you're in school. There are 30 different professors who teach these courses. Those professors really don't coordinate with one another very much. In fact, they have no idea what the makeup of their student body is within their particular class. Maybe certain students will have taken courses XYZ, other students will have taken courses ABC. Sometimes there are prerequisites, but even when there are, I'm sure you've all been in classes in college where in the first two or four weeks of a class, a professor will feel compelled to do the entire previous semester's worth of material just in case you didn't actually learn it. And the nature of that education is very much on a unitized basis. So that's one aspect. The second aspect of a traditional university is that it really is oriented towards the dissemination of information. Even at the most prestigious universities in the country, the majority of credits that are issued by a university are in lecture-based format. So students come in, a professor speaks for all or the overwhelming majority of the time. Even when a professor will take questions, the lecture effectively passes from one professor to one student, and the majority of students are sitting passively in class. So there are two problems with these two models. Curricularly, from a, from a curricular design perspective, the world doesn't work in discrete parts of subject-based knowledge. Just The world isn't divided into physics in isolation from biology in most cases, uh, or politics isolated from economics in all cases, uh, etc. And so the learning of discrete pieces of information isn't very much related to the way the world works. And it's also, by the way, not related to the way people think. Because when we think about somebody who is wise or can think about appropriate applications of practical knowledge to particular situations, 
We think of somebody who has learned lessons in one context and applies them to another. And when you deliver education in discrete packages, it turns out the brain has a very hard time with understanding that. Secondly, when you're sitting in an environment where you're passively receiving information, the retention in the brain of that information is minuscule. So study after study has shown that a typical test and lecture-based class, within six months of the end of the semester, students have forgotten 90% of what they knew during the final. Wow. Which basically means it's, it's just ineffective. And so we change both of these aspects. First, we create a curriculum and a delivery mechanism that ensures that your education isn't looked at on a course-by-course -course basis, but is looked at from a curricular perspective. And the way we do that is that we codify a dozens of different elements, learning objectives, that we refer to as habits of mind or foundational concepts. Habits of mind are things that have become automatic with practice, and foundational concepts are things that are generative, things that once you learn, you can build off of in many different ways. And then these learning objectives get introduced in one course in a particular context. They then get presented in different contexts in the very same course, and then they show up in courses throughout the curriculum in new contexts again until you have learned generalizable learning objectives, which means that you have learned things conceptually and the ways to apply them practically in multiple contexts, which means that when you encounter original situations, original contexts, you'll be able to know what to do in those situations. And the second thing that we do is that we make sure that 100% of our classes are fully active. What does fully active mean? It means that our professors aren't allowed to talk for more than four minutes at a time. The lesson plans are structured in such a way that the professor's job is really to facilitate novel application from students on what they have studied, their homework, novel idea, and actually use class time to further the intellectual development of the students. And so we do this because uh, we we're able to do this because we've built an entirely new learning environment where our students, even though all of our classes are small, less than 20 students per class, we conduct all of our formal educational uh, environments or formal education classes online via live video. So a professor and 15 students get together from 9 to 10.30 on Mondays and Wednesdays. And during that hour and a half, students are constantly at the edge of their seats applying what it is that they have studied outside of class into new contexts. So Minerva courses are extremely engaging. They're very intensive. They're integrative in the sense that you bring together different areas of and, and fields together, and they're effective. The active learning, not even fully active learning, which is what we do, but standard active learning with the same professor that gets 10% retention after six months in a lecture and test-based class, same professor, same material, same quality of students, two years after the end of an active learning class, students will retain 70% of the information. Wow. And it sounds like the professor is not even on site, that this, this is all being done with the professor remotely. 
Correct. So all of the students live together, but the professors are all over the world. We hire professors to be on our staff full time, but we don't let geography constrain them, which is another beauty of having a platform that enables close interaction between professor and student. And that allows for two things. It allows for our professors to be the best in the world in teaching their subjects, and it enables the students to change their location. And that's why at Minerva, students live in seven different countries by the time they graduate, because they don't have to take the faculty with them. The faculty is accessible anywhere you are in the world. And so it gives our students the opportunity to both have a very deep formal education, as well as the ability to apply that in multiple contexts in the real world. And so you mentioned the platform. I mean, it sounds like that's sort of the underlying technology. What, what are sort of the features? What, what is it that makes you know, the, the platform do its job so well? So there are two factors in that that enable both of these approaches to education. The first one is that we've built a number of fully active learning techniques and methodologies into the platform. So for example, at any time, a professor can press a button and see how much time each student has spent talking in the class. But rather than showing charts and numbers and things like that, all the professor sees is a color code for each student's video stream. So you'll see some students in green, some yellow, some in red. And the ones in red means they've talked too much, uh, don't call on them anymore. The ones in yellow, say they've talked about the, the average amount of time. The ones in green have not talked much at all, and therefore they're the ones that need to be engaged and coaxed out of their shell. Would, so, would it be fair to say that you're baking in um, sort of anti-bias? Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because what happens when you do that, and another element that we do is that the technology also then enables the professor to go back and rather than pass a snap judgment on who made a good point or who they thought did well in class, they go back later, listen to the recording of an activity in class, or grade a paper, and use rubrics to score, which, again, eliminates a lot of biases that generally favor men when you just ask first impressions of professors, both male and female, what was your perspective on how well someone did? Generally, both male and female professors will overgrade on instinct male responses and undergrade female responses, which is bad for both genders. Yeah, yeah. And so it creates a, uh, an environment which is not a very good educational environment. So we bake a lot of these elements into the platform. That's really cool. Let, let's talk about the professors. So, you know, what does the life of a professor look like? Um, you know, how might their training experience differ from a traditional professor, you know, their career path? I mean, it sounds like the professors could almost be gig economy people who are doing this part time while they do other things. I, it's uh, help me better understand what the professor at Minerva looks like. Sure. So on the one hand, the professors on the surface look just like professors at any other elite institution. They have great educational background. They have a PhD from the top program. They have, you know, interesting research areas, etc. So on the surface, in many ways, they look the same. But there's, there are really two fundamental differences in how we screen and prepare our professors as well as their day-to-day lifestyle. So in how we, we screen and prepare them, in order to become a professor at Minerva, you actually 
have to go in front of a class of students and teach. And we observe how it is that you teach. We get feedback from students, and that's how we make the final decision of who gets an offer. And that's important because a traditional academic environment, academics are rewarded for being very narrow and having a high rigid intelligence. And yep. By that I mean that right they're, they're the world's foremost expert on this version of plastics. And they have a particular way of producing these plastics, and their way is the best way. And if a competing researcher has a different way, their job is to bring that researcher down, right, to show that their way is better and they're going to argue for their way, et cetera. So very narrow, very rigid. Whereas what we look for are professors that have very broad interests, because again, we're much more real-world application, and the ones that have very high fluid intelligence. Right? They have a perspective in the world, but if somebody else brings another perspective, what a, a high-fluid intelligence person would do is to listen to the argument, weigh the positives and negative points, and incorporate what makes sense, and then counter what doesn't. So a very different type of perspective. And then what, even once we screen them, we put them through a month of training on how to do fully active learning, how to engage students, class management, et cetera, which for most professors is the first time they've ever been formally taught how to teach <laughs> because nowhere in your undergraduate master's or PhD program, the most students actually go through a process of teaching you how to teach, even though that's theoretically part of their profession. So that's how we screen and, and train. And then on the day-to-day, -day, professors at Minerva, because of all the screening and training, generally are full-time. The majority of classes that we offer at Minerva are taught by our full-time faculty. But there are some faculty, for example, that have a very active research program, right? And maybe doing um, research in a big scientific um, uh, installation and only have time to teach, you know, half-time which is fine. So we have also some, some of those professors who don't teach a full load, but teach a half load because they're pursuing other types of research and, or non-classroom uh, activities elsewhere. That makes sense. So already what you're doing is very progressive. It's ahead of where colleges and universities for, for the most part are. What do you see in the future? I'm, I'm, you know, if you look out a decade or a couple of decades, I'm guessing that you see the Minerva model changing. How, how might that be and why? Yeah. So already every year we've improved and learned from what we're doing and made Minerva better. And we, can, we intend to continue doing that every single year. But I think that the biggest step change for Minerva is going to be when a new entrant will come in and create a model that's even better than ours. If you think about the difference between the outcomes that we're, we're employing or deploying with fully active learning versus the standard educational model out there and all of the Ivy League universities, et cetera, the delta or the difference in impact is a bigger impact difference than penicillin was to a sugar pill. I mean, it, it's, it's actually a, 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 an absolute step change when you think about it. And we often think of Minerva as penicillin. But penicillin is also a very primitive antibiotic, right? Today, there are so many other antibiotics that are particularly uh, focused on a, on a certain microbial. And our guess is that there are going to be other institutions that will pop up in the future 
that are going to improve upon what we're doing. And that's going to force us to make other step changes to catch up ourselves. But right now, our hope is that at the very least, until some of those new institutions start up, that we can influence other universities to start rethinking what they're doing about education. And again, I mentioned at the beginning that universities are really driven by prestige. And up until now, prestige has been driven by research. But universities are, are, are coming under so much attack from the left and the right because they're in many ways disconnected with their educational purpose is that, and that we believe that the notion of prestige will actually begin to shift and start focusing on outcomes. Universities have been able to get away with it for so long because they've in many ways tricked the rest of the world into believing that research-granted prestige or selectivity-granted prestige equals outcomes-generated prestige. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you take the Harvard student body and give it to Beacon Hill Community College, and you take the Beacon Hill student body and give it to Harvard, the outcomes will be exactly reversed. It will be with the students, not with the institution. Because guess what? Beacon Hill Community College and Harvard teach physics in the exact same way. There's no difference, <laughs> right? And so what universities are currently relied on is just attracting great students. And what we're trying to show is that despite the fact that we attract wonderful students, what we're able to do with them, the preparation that we give them that they can apply in the real world, puts them years ahead of their competitors or peers at other institutions. And so we believe that the more the world sees this, the more the definition of prestige will change to be focused on outcomes. And if that occurs, then not only will you see new entrants adopt Minerva-like models, but you will see existing institutions adopt our models as well. For the existing institutions, it feels like it will be a longer time horizon, probably starting with more mid-level institutions and the highest prestige ones being later. Does that sort of track with your thinking or is that off? Well, I mean, so far, we've actually seen uh, quite the opposite, interestingly enough. So, for example, a few months ago, we announced our first partnership with the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which happens to be the number one ranked young university in the world. Mm. Uh, that's basically universities started in 1970 or later. And HKUST, which is not only highly ranked as a young university, but highly ranked in general, uh, extraordinarily prestigious, I think has the number one uh, business program in Asia, I think number one executive MBA in the world, is, uh, was the first university to go and say, you know what, we should look at the Minerva model and take a small group of students and then implement this type of curriculum for them, for their general education, and see what happens. And, and I think that elite universities are actually under an enormous amount of pressure from the external world to demonstrate that it's not just that they're selecting good students, uh, because that's not no longer a novel or hidden uh, trope. It's, it actually is, uh, is out there, and, and there's pretty strong evidence. In fact, there's research that showed that if you look at people who were accepted to Harvard, but then decided to go to other institutions, including state schools, if, as, so long as they come from the top 80% of socioeconomic 
households in the country, which is something like 90-some percent of students admitted to Harvard, that their life outcomes are exactly the same as those who chose to go to Harvard, which, again, basically shows that it's a selection process. And so I think the Ivies are under much closer scrutiny for effectively picking good students and then stepping aside as opposed to actually uh, shaping them. And so I do think that you're going to have institutions throughout the spectrum that are going to be adopting the Minerva model, but I don't think it'll be reserved to institutions that are, quote unquote, in the middle of the pack uh, as opposed to institutions really uh, across the board. That's that's very interesting. You know, coming back to the question of technology, are there any sort of emerging technologies or sort of science fiction technologies, things that people aren't even talking about, but you can imagine in your mind that you think could be a key component to help take Minerva specifically or higher education in general to the next level and, and why? How can technology really yeah. change? Yeah. Well, I, I think first and foremost, you know, the, the piece of technology that we have deployed in part, but are going to continue to build on and, and, and work on in the very near future um, is this idea of the scaffolded curriculum introducing a particular learning objective and then tracking how that learning objective is applied and mastered across 30 different professors in four years. And this doesn't sound like such a radical improvement, but it fundamentally changes the nature of education. You know, imagine when you think about a person who is wise, the immediate image that you see in your, your mind is somebody who's old, right? Because they, they've had decades of experience. They've made the same mistake over and over again in very different contexts. And then they finally learn their, their lesson. Imagine if the world could produce students who had the analytical capabilities to make wise choices at 22, 23. That's transformational. I mean, it's far more important than you know, uh, you know, oftentimes when people think about technology and education, they'll say, oh, you get to have a virtual reality experience and fly through a pyramid. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, who cares? Right? I mean, that's not, not a really uh, impactful uh, – I mean, it's great for Hollywood. Uh, it's great for Sizzle. But how is that really going to change the world? How is that actually going to have dramatic positive impact? Whereas if you actually – shorten the time that humanity needs to acquire wisdom by 30 or 40 years, think about what the world can do. And that, by the way, can only be done with technology. Without technology, you cannot track individual student progress and modify their personalized intellectual development in a classroom environment. You just, you, you need to have the data. You need to have the data in a way that the professor can react and do something with it. And you, without technology, it's just, it's just impossible. It's impossible to collect the data. It's impossible to disseminate it. It's impossible to present it to the professor in real time in a format in which they can, they can use it. And I believe that some of the real opportunities in the future are going to be where augmented reality will effectively replace the need to be on a, you know, kind of have a laptop type interface. I could imagine an augmented reality where you have a classroom of students and a professor in one place or where you have actually 30 students in 30 different parts of the world 
having an immersive real life experience with a professor with the data overlay. And I, I think when you have the opportunity for uh, education to remove boundaries and constraints, you can all of a sudden think very differently about what the nature of education should be. And, and that empowers humans to come up with solutions that are far, far, far more advanced than what most universities are currently doing. And, and again, it's, it's how you go from our penicillin to the spectrum of antimicrobials that you'll, you'll have in, in the future in, in the analogy. You know, when, when you talk about, you know, sort of a world of young 20-somethings who are, are wise and evolved, it makes me think of human development models uh, such as like integral theory. Are there any specific human development models or philosophies that you are sort of relying on as you, you know, work your way through all of this? Well, there's a number of them, but specifically really about how the brain works, right? Now, granted, I may have been a little bit advanced in my in my hope for 22 or 23 year olds to have real applied wisdom even though we're seeing some of that because the brain really doesn't get uh, overwhelmingly formed until 25 or 26 so you may have to push that back by a couple of years have full frontal lobe development etc so that that's an important component but when you really look at the literature that everything at Minerva is based on it comes from both aspects of literature around how the mind actually works and how memory gets stimulated and, and is effective. And that's the fully active learning part. But again, perhaps the more important aspect is literature around what psychologists refer to as far transfer. Now, far transfer is actually a very thinly studied area of, of research, but it generally shows that it takes many people many decades to attain generalizable critical thinking. And that when you try to teach critical thinking or try to do development of people on generalizable skills within subject, it just doesn't work. So there was a, a, a relatively uh, a prominent study in the world of, of, uh, of far transfer that uh, wanted to test how people were considered very good critical thinkers in their field do on general critical thinking types of questions. And so they, they used air flight controllers, you know, uh, the folks who are, uh, who are uh, having to think on the fly about changing wind conditions and different planes coming in and making some really important on the spot critical thinking decisions and wanted to see how they do on a general uh, critical thinking test. And it turned out they performed in the general test just like an average professional. Really, there is no uh, carryover from one area to another. You know, you can think about brilliant doctors or scientists that you talk to, engage with them in a conversation about politics or economics or things that affect them day to day, about their personal relationships. They're no better critical thinkers than, than anybody else, right? It's not, not to say, oh, yes, you know, the best spouses are are people who are extraordinarily brilliant economists. I have not seen evidence to that, uh, to that effect. Or I think mm -hmm. that that's true. And that is a failure of transfer because many principles that you can apply in critical thinking in a particular field apply broadly in any domain of your life. And that really is the key to education. So if you can shortcut the process of mastering far transfer, you can have a, a pretty dramatic impact. 
you know, colleges and universities are our big, entrenched, bureaucratic organizations. If we have people listening to the show who are stakeholders in a place like that, and they're inspired by what they're hearing, what would you suggest for them? How can people be part of sort of a grassroots change to move education forward? So I would encourage them to begin having moral conversations in, in their institutions. And not to uh, be gentle about them, but to go to their institutions and have real challenge, right? To say, wait, okay, time out. If we believe that we're educational institutions, if society is reliant on us to educate our students, how is it that we're the majority of credits that we deliver, we now have a 90% failure rate within six months? How can we live with ourselves for doing that? And by the way, there's a lot of angst about the state of our national discourse and our politics. Our founding fathers created the university system in the United States different from that that existed in Europe specifically to teach the liberal arts. The liberal arts have nothing to do with poetry, by the way, have nothing to do with the humanities. The mm-hmm. liberal arts were those disciplines that citizens and franchise citizens must master in order for them to enjoy the fruits of liberty. That's where liberal arts comes from. And if you do not have mastery of transferable practical knowledge, the founding fathers didn't use these terms, they used practical knowledge and useful knowledge, but not transferable, because that's a 20th century term. But they basically said, look, how could you have a person who is a farmer or a merchant uh, or a doctor one day become a senator or a judge or a president the next day. If they are not trained in the liberal arts, the representative republic will not function. And so it is the job of universities to make our society function. And if you believe that you're teaching critical thinking in a broad-based way, I have a wonderful challenge that anybody within the institution can give to their higher-ups. Do an A-B test. Put our penicillin against your sugar pill and see what happens. And these are empirical institutions. They like evidence. Run a test. And I think when you approach an institution from the point of their moral standing and their responsibility to society and offer them a way to validate their beliefs, if they, if they really believe that what they're doing is great, then you know, it's going to be very hard for any opposition to stand up to that. Uh, because what, what will they say? Will they say, well, yeah, uh, we don't really care about society. They're not going to say that. Oh, yeah, we prefer to deliver uh, courses and lectures, even though we know it doesn't work. All the American evidence is crystal clear about that. We just think that our, our professors are, are magical lecturers, and when they lecture, people actually absorb, which is just, <laughs> just patently not true. Or are they going to say, oh, well, you know, we don't want to really run A-B test because despite the fact that all of the empirical evidence shows that what we're doing is an absolute failure and that we're not living up to the responsibility that society has placed upon us, well, we wouldn't want to actually try to deploy something that is proven to be effective because, oh my God, we, we can't possibly run an experiment on, on children. 
which of course they are doing by not uh, deploying what experiments have shown has has worked. Uh, and so it's it's a very hard thing to resist once you engage in the intentionality, in the purpose of these institutions. Because the people at universities are good people. They want to see good in the world. They want mm-hmm. to actually move the world forward. Um, it is overwhelmingly an enlightened group of human beings. It's just that it happens that when they get together, they become very conservative and resist change. And that's to their de- to the detriment of what they themselves want to see happen. Well, Ben, this has been very inspiring. And what you're doing at Minerva is wonderful. So I, 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 I know you'll keep it up and I look forward to seeing where it goes from here. Uh, thank you so much. Our pleasure and uh, really, really appreciate uh, you having me on. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we are mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And, of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Ben, how about you? Uh, you can follow all of our work with the Minerva Schools at KGI at, at Minerva Schools on Twitter uh, or www.minerva.kgi.edu. So that's it for episode 277 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.